you're a yeah. nice Jewish boy. Yeah, yeah. And you're, you're, you know, you don't want to be Mr. Melanoma, is what I'm saying. Worst superhero ever. He, his superpower is he gives you slow-moving cancer. No, we can hear yeah. you. Your Wi-Fi sucks, bro. Yeah. You, you sound a little like Cher singing Believe, but, okay. you know, with that. So, yeah, but go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, to you, everything sounds like Cher. <laughs> Hey, it's the end of June. It's Glop Culture. I'm John Podhoritz in New York. A summering in Martha's yeah. Pocket or nice. whatever. Rob Long. John, how are you? I, I, I'm well. And uh, not summering in Washington, D.C. Jonah Goldberg. Hi, Jonah. Hi, John. Uh, it is summer in Washington, D.C. It is one of those milk was a bad choice kind of D.C. days. Um, it's really, t- it's just, it's, it's objectively terrible outside. It is yeah, it's objective, and and in New York, and in New York too. Rob, you you wanted to start the show off with a with it with an right. anecdote. Here comes the anecdote, the canned anecdote now. Um, so uh, I was in line at this market. It's it, it, here I am, and this guy stopped me and he said, "Are you Rob Long?" And I said, "Yes." He said, "He remembers two years ago we uh, I did a Glop, his favorite podcast from Nantucket, and they he and his uh, wife were here, uh, and so he asked me to give him a shout out. So Kelly McGriff, hello." And your lovely wife. They were lovely. I think she's a little bored by hearing how great we are. Um, but um, but I, I'm not bored about hearing how great we are. So that was enough. That's the anecdote. Um, speaking of things, yeah, when you're a fan of something, like, and, and particularly men are fans of things and women are often not fans of things, uh, I, I texted you guys the other day to say, and I can't remember why, but I said, you know what? We could do an entire glop about the movie Stripes. Uh, the movie Stripes, to me, it seems, is a particular love. Uh, some of us of a certain age have have a have a desperate love for this movie. That, um, but I believe that everybody uh, has an XY chromosome. Like I, I don't think that this is a movie that women share the same feeling for. It's a movie I can quote literally from beginning to end. I've seen a thousand times. If it comes on TV, I just sit there with my mouth hanging open, watching it and mouthing the words. Um, and my wife was like, I, 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 I saw I enjoyed it. It's like, you can't just enjoy it. <laughs> it's like saying you enjoy, you know, the Bible. Like, you don't enjoy stripes. You, 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 you inhale stripes. You, you inhibit, you inhabit stripes. I don't know. So, but the thing is, so I brought this up. I had a conversation with uh, Jack Butler. Remember my amanuensis uh, now at National Review? Um, and he just didn't get it. He didn't understand why, like, people our age like it. He didn't understand why it was supposed to be so funny. He, like, literally watched it and was like, I don't get why it's supposed to be so funny. And I think, well, A, he's, of course, wrong. But that's not, you know, the interesting question is why is he wrong? And... I think there is something particularly about Bill Murray at the, when he was at yeah. that age, at, you know, making those movies that so captures this essence of the, the, the boomer Gen X male on we <laughs> irony that right, 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 doesn't right. play the same way anymore. You know, I mean, there's just something about 
when he, whether it was on Saturday Night Live or in Stripes, that yeah. hits this tone that is just so on for a certain generation. And it's like I remember um, I had this I had this assistant years ago who told me that old school was his generation's Animal House, and he thought it was so much funnier. And you know, hey, wrong. But it, I kind of hope you slapped him. Slapped <laughs> him. <laughs> I mean, old school has some funny moments, but it's just not Animal House, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, mean, I would say like, uh, but isn't there a dis- isn't there a choice though? I mean, I don't know if there's a choice, but for me, I, all of those feelings that John has for Meatballs, perfectly fine Stripes. film as far as I'm concerned. I have for Caddyshack. I said Stripes, not Meatballs. But I don't know any women who go stripes. around saying, "Oh my it's god, fine. I love yeah. Caddyshack." Oh, sorry, Stripes, right? Like I, I, I don't know many women who go around saying, "I love Caddyshack." Right. No, honestly. Like, so, so uh, you know, Nora Ephron made a made a half a movie about this joke. Right. It's the whole plot of Sleepless in Seattle. Uh, there's also stuff about it in You've Got Mail, but where uh, you know, uh, women are like obsessed with an affair to remember with with Cary Grant and Deborah Carr. And men have no idea what she's talking about. And you've got male. It's men to just quote the Godfather. Every piece of wisdom in the world is from the Godfather. And Meg Ryan says, I don't get it. Why do men always quote the Godfather? There is some very, you know, like uh, sex link difference. But I have an answer on the Bill Murray yeah. thing, I think, which is and why it's so specific to the time that we lived in, which is that Bill Murray was a post hippie post-60s comic presence. And part of it was, I am so sick of all this crap. I'm sick of everything. I've had it with all of your nonsense about saving the world and this and that. You're all full of it. And I am like, I am cynical. I've seen it from all sides. And, you know, uh, all you, you know, peace-loving hippies suck. And all of you warmongers, I'm just, it's enough. You know, like, let me just get through the day. I would would agree with that, but I would amend it this way. Is that he's that person, but he's not mad about it. He's Mm -hmm. okay with it. Like, there's not, not, like, and even when. He finds it all funny that he's that person. Yeah, it's all funny. And I would just have to say that this is, this is how he is in the, 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 the times that I've, I've spent with him personally. Um, he always has that attitude that sort of, yeah, it's kind of funny. You know, he's just not, he's just not pissed. And he's not cynical in the sense of being like resigned. He's just kind of, uh, people are weird. Right. So you just, and, oh, there I go on. and, uh, yeah. you become, and the whole thing about the Bill Murray movies is that he becomes a good person. The whole point about Stripes and Meatballs and Ghostbusters and Scrooged even is and that these dude, are movies in and which Groundhog Day. Self- and the and Groundhog Day, obviously, yeah. the ultimate, right, is the ultimate version, is he's a self-centered, kind of selfish, but a very amusing guy. And by the end of the movie, you know, by in, in each of those movies, except for Groundhog Day, he delivers a kind of Newt Rockney all-American pep talk yeah. To the world, uh, you know, he gives the speech and stripes where he says, you know, we're gonna we're gonna turn ourselves into a crack, you know, platoon because we're this is America. We're ten and one. You know, he gives the speech and meatballs about how they, it doesn't matter whether they lose or win the camp competition. He gives a speech and it's all this stuff about how this guy, you know, grows up, uh, uses all of his wise-assery and, 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 and mockery 
but it turns out that he actually has a real character there, and that's part of the reason that you can watch these movies again and again. So because he's actually he turns into an admirable person, right? In part because he ends up actually believing in something, right? And, yeah, right. But yeah. I, we have a Goldberg family tradition. Uh, driven by my daughter, as most of the Goldberg family traditions are, uh, to watch Meatballs every summer before she goes to camp. And now we watch it even though oh. she doesn't go to camp anymore. So I've watched it many times. I mean, I watched it many times before this tradition. Um, but I just watched it last week. and Or re-watched it last week. And um, I don't know why it really hadn't occurred to me as much as it had until this last rewatching how weird the actual facts of the movie are like it's not a movie about campers almost at all there's one camper the rudy the rabbit guy right everybody else is a cit in this thing and like what since when are like counselors in training the only ones who are doing athletics like, all the competition between the camps aren't between the kids. The kids are spectators, and they're watching their counselors play games. It's very strange. <laughs> and I got to say, we noticed this a couple of years ago when, you know, when we started watching it when my daughter was of age where this stuff was, you know, in the air. It was, like, basically during Me Too, the scene where Bill Murray is making his moves on the head female yeah. Counselor is bad. It's not, not good. It's, it's not good. It's, it's, it's it really is, not good. It's yeah. pretty yeah. rapey. And, yeah, um, it's pretty right, like, like, like Animal House. I mean, they're, they're, yeah. Animal House and Revenge of the Nerds mm -hmm. both have porkies. rape scenes in them. No, I mean, there there is a Revenge of the Nerds, which is a, you know, like a movie about how lovely these kids are and how nice they are and how they're being tormented by these terrible, you know, other fraternities and sororities. There's a scene in which the head nerd basically rapes the head so he, he he has sex with her because he's wearing a Darth Vader mask and she doesn't know that it's him. And, false and then she's thrilled yeah. that it's him because he was really good in bed. I mean, that is that is really bad. It's not good. It's not good. It, but it is quite a nerd fantasy, right? <laughs> Well, everything's a fantasy. The Darth Vader mask is a fantasy. Being good is a fantasy. Like it's a, yeah. it's a complete yeah, I know. dream journal. But, yeah. but back to stripes for just two seconds, since I've written about this, and actually quite some length, comparing it to the book Closing of the American Mind. Um, in so far as there is a rich, my my standard argument about this is that there's a rich debate among. Lots of people about where Closing the American Mind goes off the rails and becomes quasi-unreadable, whether it's about the Nietzscheization of the left or when, it's, when you're done with Mac the Knife, I don't know. But about halfway in, you're like, oh, okay, I kind of get it. Stripes, I would argue, or I have argued, I've, I've come to appreciate the second half more, but I would argue the last really funny moment until the very end is um, when o Dewey Oxberger says, well, now, if we were in Italy, you'd get the top bunk. And then it's kind of not funny for a while, um, except for Harold Ramis saying, come on, let's take it for a road trip. And and then it's basically the end, a party for me getting off the plane. This, the first half of Stripes, much like, uh, um, oh, what's the, the, the Vietnam movie? Um, uh, Full Metal Jacket. Full Metal Jacket. The first half is much better than the second half. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, I like to say, now, I, I will tell you, I read an interview with Howard Williams about Stripes, and Harold Ramis, who was like a big hippie lefty, said that the director, uh, Ivan Reitman, Ivan Reitman uh, was a refugee from Czechoslovakia, uh, went to Toronto. His parents, like, fled Czechoslovakia, um, I think in 1968. Uh, I, I'm not sure when exactly, but he, he was a, he's a Czech refugee, and he... And so Harold Ramis said, oh, Ivan just wanted to put in all his anti-communist crap. Because <laughs> the second half of Stripes is they go into Czechoslovakia to rescue the pl- their platoon, which has been sort of like idiotically sent there by John Larroquette, the commanding officer. And they go to try to rescue them. And it was sort of like Ivan Reitman wanted to win the Cold War uh, on, on, the, on behalf of Czechoslovakia. Right. And, uh, you know, I like that. I'm sorry. I can't, I cannot get away from my, my political biases here. Uh, Stripes is a movie in which the U.S. Army defeats a communist country and wins the Cold War. Yeah, but right. is that part funny? I mean, I, 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 not really. So, not like the first It's satisfying. It's going to go and come out. It'll be, it's like going to Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, just, it's more sad. Yeah, but it's a satisfying try. You know, you need a uh, the comedies need a triumphant thing. The the interesting thing about Ivan Reitman was that he was so successful for Universal. They built a building for him on the Universal lot, and um, it was the beginning of the end of his career because he became, <laughs> um, it, ironically, um, Stalin like and and crazy and and kind of made a lot of movies that didn't make any money. And was absolutely unreachable by anybody, and which would take no, no, absolutely take no criticism or, or suggestions or anything, and and destroy whatever, uh, destroyed a huge amount of the rest of his career, and was then was kicked off the lot. And the person installed in that lot was a director named um, Tom Shadyac, uh, who did went and did exactly the same thing. And there are people who are who have refused to be moved into that building at Universal because it's got bad luck to it. It's the beginning of the end of your career. Well, Tom Shadyac uh, made, uh, unlike Ivan, Ivan Reitman, who made messy but really good, uh, messy but funny and memorable movies, right? He made Stripes, right. he made Meatballs, right. he made Ghostbusters, he made Ghostbusters 2. Um, uh, Tom Shadyac made these wildly successful, absolutely wretched and unwatchable movies and then he became a monster, and then he quit, and he sort of like ended up as some kind of a kind of weird new agey secular saint person, teaching in schools and you know ministering to the poor and stuff like that. Because he made Patch Adams, and he decided he was Patch Adams, <laughs> and he left. He made Patch Adams. He made I don't know, but he made just terrible. Yeah, I'm trying to think. What else drippy. did he make? What did he make? Did he make Ace Ventura? He uh, made, made Ace Ventura and, and um, Evan Almighty and Bruce Almighty. Right. Not and then, and then, no, and, and none of them is none of them is good. And yet he was this wildly. He he was like yeah. He was the next Ivan Reitman. Um, uh, Ivan Reitman. Uh, you know the weird thing is that Ivan Reitman's son. You know who became a a much more critically acclaimed director than his father ever had been because he made Juno, you know, which got nominated for all these Oscars, and he made um, Up in the Air, which got nominated for Oscars and stuff like that. His son, Jason, has now remade, Ghost, has made a new Ghostbusters, right. which right. was postponed because of the pandemic, which is 
Ghostbusters meets Stranger Things. Hmm. It's the kids, if hmm. you see the trailer, it's the kids from Stranger Things, and they go into some closet, and there are the Ghostbusters costumes. So it's going to be some it's some weird amalgam. It's not precisely the kids. You know, it's like kids like the kids on Stranger Things. It's kind of a brilliant conceit to figure out how to update a movie like Ghostbusters by by making them all teenagers yeah. and, like, making it seem like a more contemporary product. But uh, that's what happened to Ivan Reitman is his son is now remaking yeah. Ivan Reitman's movies. They used to do that with, um, uh, uh, like, TV shows that would be, like, such and such babies. All in the family mm-hmm. babies, or like the, oh, the cartoons. Yeah, yeah, the cartoon where they were a little, they were the same. Like, obviously, the Flintstones was famously the honeymooners, but they would just do these yeah. movies that are little cartoon shows that were basically sitcoms, but called but babies. It's not something babies. Yeah. We used to like do that in the room, yeah. and when we were on Cheers, we were like the Cheers babies. This is a good show for the Cheers babies, not for the actual Cheers actors. <laughs> Save this for them. You know, you know, what completely flopped was Roots babies. It's just. Bad idea. Oh, bad <laughs> I am. Well, wait. You, but, uh, you know you what? It's now. <laughs> but what's interesting is like, th- I remember watching that show and like being riveted. It was on the summer, and was burned off in the summer by the uh, then president of ABC, Fred Silverman. It was a it was a, a miniseries. They burned it off in the summer because he thought. No one's going to watch this. Uh, and his, uh, according to a person who was there, he said, no one's going to watch this show about, and then he used a uh, uh, appalling racial slur. A term he shouldn't then A term he, term he, he shouldn't have ought to. And then he, then, so he said, we'll burn it off in August. So they burned it off in August, but it turned out to be the biggest thing in television history, the country was riveted. It's all, people were just talking about it all the time because they were, because the story had never been told before in that way. And I and I remember just being riveted by it, being riveted by the story, just not missing one of them. Uh, and it, to me, what's the most amazing thing is that you could not put that show on TV today. That if you just ran yeah. reran that, you would not be allowed to rerun that. Roots. Well, so there's a show on right now uh, called The Underground Railroad based on Colson Whitehead's novel made by the guy who made Moonlight, Barry Jenkins. Um, I think it's on Amazon. I can't remember. And um, what's important or what's interesting about it is that it's unwatchable. And it's unwatchable the way, you know, if you made a really good movie about the – if you actually made a really serious movie about the Holocaust, it would be unwatchable. The, the, right. The, the purpose of it is to portray the unending, unmitigated, un, uninterrupted horror of the life of a slave with almost no – and it is impossible to watch. And the key to something like Roots is that within a very standard melodramatic confines of a melodramatic context or something like that, so you use conventional means, right, like the historical right. novel or like a historical miniseries or something to illuminate a grievous historical monstrosity, but you give you let you you give people something to hold on to. A story, some love, some you know, understanding yeah. something like that 
that isn't just unrelievedly horrible. And that's what you couldn't do anymore because the idea would be that it was all sugary sweetness and you were lightening it up and you're, you're, you know, you're not telling the truth about the horrors of slavery. So what you need to do is do something like spend $100 million on the Underground Railroad, which no, only a masochist, only a deep, profound masochist could actually watch from beginning to end because it is so unrelievedly nightmarishly horrible. Right. And, you know, this is always a problem depicting, you know, calamities and monstrosities and things like that. But I think that the version no in which you figure out a way to... Huh? There are no laughs. That's the problem. You've got to have a few laughs in there. Yeah, you need some laughs. You need some That's laughs. why you need roots babies is what, was what you're saying. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, you know, you got to have some, uh, you know... Where's the funny? Okay, and now a word from our first sponsor. Critical race theory is sweeping American higher education. At Wake Forest University, the Department of Mathematics and Statistics has implemented anti-racist math coursework. In spring 2021, the University of New Hampshire began offering a class on racism in science, and the University of Pittsburgh's medical school has even added a vow against system racism to the 2,500-year-old Hippocratic Oath. It's happening at universities throughout America and across curricula from history to architecture, from medicine to economics. Critical race theory, the idea that America is an inherently racist country and that each American must be reprogrammed to dispel his or her intrinsic racism, is opposed by an overwhelming majority of Americans. Yet leaders in higher education, from prestigious Ivy League campuses to state schools in the Deep South, continue to impose this radical ideology on students and faculty alike. Founded by a Cornell Law professor, CriticalRace.org is the definitive resource for students, parents, alumni, university donors, and all Americans concerned about the continued creep of critical race theory in higher education. The investigative journalists at Legal Insurrection Foundation provide you with the latest updates on how individual schools are implementing critical race training, how local and state and federal governments are getting involved, and how some parents and states are fighting back. To stop this toxic and un-American ideology, we must be diligent. CriticalRace.org is the resource you need to stay informed about this assault on higher education in America. Don't delay. Visit CriticalRace.org today. That's CriticalRace.org. And we thank CriticalRace.org for sponsoring the Glop podcast. So right after I told you guys I wanted to talk only about stripes, which we obviously have stopped doing, uh, Michael McKeon, uh, the... uh, the very funny actor, performer, who was uh, Lenny on yeah. Laverne and Shirley, then made the, he was the Spinal Tap, all of that. He just out of nowhere said, name the five movies that you've seen ten times on Twitter. And, like, thousands of people responded. And I thought it was a very interesting thing because, like, saying the movies you like and you've seen a lot of times is one thing. But talking about the movies that you've seen ten times, that's... Right. Ten times the very, very serious, you know, thing. And I'm not talking about TV shows, because there are many people have seen, like, The Honeymooners, particularly if you're our age, you would have seen, you might have seen The Honeymooners or I, or I Love Lucy episodes ten times, simply because you came home from school, right. and they were, there were only 39 Honeymooners yeah. episodes, and they ran for 20 years on Channel 11 in New York. So I probably, but, and but I didn't like The Honeymooners that much. Yeah. But it's, it's harder okay, now, movie. right? Or easier now. But it, it's a less of a. It's easier now, but it's less of an issue, because back then, remember, if you saw a movie in the movie theater, you, that was maybe the last time you you were going to see it. Like when were you? you yeah. know, when we were kids, you saw a movie. That was it. You saw it. Like when were you going to see it again? Never. <laughs> right. 
And now yeah, you can so just rent. My, my only problem with this, because I've been, I've been trying to do this in my head for since that, that tweet yeah. thread first came out. Part of my problem is, like, it's there are broken pieces, right? Because the movies right. that you're most likely to have seen ten times are these ones that are in pretty good rotation on cable, and some of these, like. If I get to add yeah. up all the fractions yeah. of, like, the, the 20 minutes I watched Godfather added to the other 20 minutes added to the other 20 minutes, I'd probably watch Godfather 25, yeah. 30 right. times, you know. Um, but you know, movies that you've actually deliberately sat down and watched from beginning to end, you know. Or what's the stupidest movie you've seen 10 times? The stupidest, worst movie. Not not a bad movie, but just, like, for no I, – I have seen the movie Payback with Mel Gibson. At least fifteen times. I have no idea why. I think that's I an amazingly just, watchable it is, movie. It is. It is. It, it, that's a I, yeah. It is a watchable movie. Um, but it is. It is. And I don't really think it's stupid. Roadhouse. Roadhouse. <laughs> Roadhouse is probably. Okay. Oh my god! How did I not think of Roadhouse? But I haven't seen Roadhouse again, as you would say, Jonah. Like I, I, I haven't seen Roadhouse from beginning to end. Ten times, but I did see it in the theater, and I may have seen it twice in the theater. And then I have seen half an hour here, twenty yeah. minutes there, all the over the course of the time that TNT or TBS ran it. Right. Maybe every other week. So I mean, it, I mean, it was on like forty or fifty times a year. So but, is it fair to say that there are two kinds of movies you've seen ten times? The first are the masterpieces. The works of genius, you know, the best years of our lives, things like that. And the other kind are just terrible. Right, yeah. So can, can I break in for just a second here because I think this is an important point to add. I don't think we've ever mentioned this on here. But you guys know, since we talked so much about Bill Murray earlier, and you just mentioned Roadhouse, you guys know that it's like this famous thing yeah. where every time Roadhouse is on and Bill Murray or one of his brothers see it, they call um, Kelly Lynch's husband and say hey i was just changing channels and i saw patrick swayze nailing your wife again um, <laughs> well, i believe that is yeah. true here's the here's here's the here's the line from the interview um with i guess with i think it's in uh, kelly lynch says yeah kelly lynch says every time roadhouse is on and he or one of his idiot brothers are watching TV, and they're always watching TV. One of them calls my husband and says, in a reasonable approximation of Carl Spackler, Kelly's having sex with Patrick Swayze right now. They're doing it. He's the runner against the rocks. Um, and, um, I think that's just freaking well, awesome. But that guy, they, her that husband, husband like I that. believe, wrote food. Yeah. yeah. So I think her husband wrote Scrooge, so he's an old, you know, friend. Yeah, I don't think it's like, yeah. I mean, it, it would be yeah. a weirder story if, like, he had no connection with them yeah. and just randomly was yeah. calling. <laughs> uh, anyway, but, so, Rob, can you think of a movie, a dumb movie? Oh, you said uh, well, Payback, I mean, I, but. Payback, it's just like, I don't want, I mean, it, it's, it's not good. I mean, I mean that's fine, but it, it's not, it's not like there's a reason to watch, rewatch it. Um. I can't. I can't. I mean, oh, the, I, I, I think it's really an interestingly shot movie. Yeah, but it's like it's not. It doesn't reward. I have a multiple the, viewings. You know, it's uh, he kills the Bill yeah, Devane, and then I he have kills a couple the of other guy, and then he kills the which one? 
I have a bizarre one for you. This is really weird. Donovan's Reef with John Wayne. <laughs> John Wayne and J- John Ford made this movie in the early 60s. And it's about these guys who, you know, finished their stints in World War II and stayed on the Polynesian island uh, where they had fought, you know, really, as you're, you're met, led to believe, really horrific fights with the Japanese. And, like, they just didn't want to go back. And they basically, John Wayne opened a bar, and uh, yeah. and uh, Lee Marvin opened a bar, and, uh, and Jack Warden uh, stayed as the doctor and left his, was so traumatized, he left his family back in Boston, and his daughter, now grown, comes to find him. And it's... Uh, it's a it's a liberal race movie because it's all about how John Wayne uh, how um, Jack Warden has children with a Poly- has with a Polynesian woman and doesn't want his horrible Boston Brahmin racist daughter to know that these kids are her sister and brother and so John Wayne poses as their parent. And then his daughter wow. falls in love with John Wayne, who, of course, ends the movie as he ends most of his comedies, taking her and putting her over his knee and spanking her, which is something yeah. he does to Maureen O'Hara in yeah. three different movies. This is like, must have been his fetish, John Wayne. Oh, no, must no, have no. Been like, a spanking it, fetish. Donovan's Reef, I think, has, Donovan's Reef has like a whole gay undertone, right? We don't want to go home to our wives. We like the sweaty yeah. humidity of the tropics together. And let's open a bar. I mean, you know, I'm not trying to make it, make it what it's not. I'm just trying to point out the contours that exist. Which is true about a lot of movies, actually. But, but I don't know why I've seen it from it. But it, it's like, there are these movies, if you put a movie on a beach... I think I, I may even have said this less. Like, you put them, I'll just watch it. I don't care. I, I, as long as if there are waves rolling and people yeah. are walking along a beach, right. I don't care. If it's set in Hawaii, I'm fine. And usually in a horrible, on, you know, in Venice, a horrible process shot where it's, they are shooting the scene in broad daylight <laughs> and they put a thick blue filter on the lens <laughs> and they try to convince you that the burning sun yeah. is the moon. It's, and that you're in a night, yeah. you're walking around, and the moon is so bright that there are no shadows. I just wish we could live here forever yeah. in this beautiful moonlight. Well, don't look right at it. It'll hurt you. <laughs> <laughs> the riff you had, John, earlier about, like, uh, Sleepless in Seattle, men like certain yeah. kind of movies, whatever, stretch out. So the movie they talk about in Sleepless in Seattle... Um, that that Tom Hanks jokingly breaks down and cries about yeah. is the Dirty Dozen, yeah. and there's a whole gamut of good to great to mediocre World War II movies. But again, I think sitting down and watching from beginning to end, some I may have, may just barely reach ten. Maybe I come a come a little short of. Right. But if I if I can add up all the different times I watch big chunks of them, because the, to me that is just like. Yeah, relaxation sounds in the background while I'm doing other things. Dirty Dozen, like Great Escape, definitely I've seen oh more than ten times. Oh yeah, um, uh, Dirty Dozen, Bridge on a River Kwai, oh, magnificent. Uh, Kelly's Heroes, sure. I love Kelly's Heroes, sure. and I will fight anybody who disagrees with That's me. That's a great movie. Um, 
Battle of Bulge, maybe I haven't seen ten times, but yeah, I, Guns, I, of, I, Guns I, of Navarone, Guns of oh, Navarone, Guns of Navarone. Uh, but I mean, it's a, a Patton. Oh yeah, Patton. Patton. I saw Patton when I was ten or something. I saw Patton at the movies five times. Oh, Patton was the first time. movie that I fell in love with. Wow. Movie I saw a bunch of times at the theater, maybe not ten times, yeah. but at least five is Smoking the Bandit. Oh, because yeah. like I was yeah. of that age, right? It was they they brought the movie back a couple times, and my mom would give me and my brother money and say, "Get out of the house, go to the movies," and we would sneak in or stay, watch it a second time. Loved Smoking the Bandit. I'm not saying yeah. it's a great film, but it was. A I think I saw time. Poseidon Adventure a bunch of times in, in the theater. For a variety of reasons, I don't oh, remember yeah. why. I seem to remember seeing it a lot. Um, also, like in terms of ma- masterpiece movies, like uh, the best years of our, their lo- of our best years of our lives, I've seen at least fifty times. Um, Bridge of the River Kwai is another brilliant, brilliant movie. Mm-hmm. Touch of Evil, I've seen a thousand times, and that's a um, Orson Welles B-, B movie from the fifties. But I I I, I can't evil, let yeah. this go without confessing this: I have never seen one moment of Sleepless in Seattle. Well, When Harry Met Sally is one of the movies I've seen ten times. But uh, there's a whole thing with New York movies that uh, I have to I have to exempt myself from uh, any New York movie that was made that shows that shows the New York that I grew up in uh, is another one of those things I will just stop and and watch uh, almost like uh, you know as a kind of insane nostalgia fest. Particularly. Like Panic and Needle Park. Yeah, because remember that's where French Connection. Those are the movies you grew up. That was the New York you grew okay, up. Okay, here's in. my anecdote. 1999. I'm dating somebody uh, who lives on the Upper West Side, and we're walking down a block, the block that she lives on. Uh, and at the end of the block, 75th and Riverside is her apartment building, which happens to be the apartment building that the Gershwin brothers had an apartment in and wrote many of the greatest songs of the 20th century in. And I'm walking down the block, and I'm like, this is, looks familiar. This looks oddly familiar. What does it look familiar? And then I realized it's the block in Death Wish. It is in her apartment <laughs> building is the apartment building that Charles Bronson and Hope Lang live in in Death Wish. When Hope, Hope Lang is walking back from the D'Agostinos which, and then gets uh, you know, raped and murdered in her apartment. And uh, basically, so, you know, I had this sort of moment of weird... It's like, I know that because I've seen Death Wish 10 times, you know. Um, I would say in the masterpiece category, the movies I've seen more than any other are Singing in the Rain, uh, The Philadelphia Story, and um, uh, All About Eve. And I've probably seen Gone with the Wind eight or nine times in full length because they would bring it back. Gone with the Wind, they would bring back every year almost for a yeah. two-week stint somewhere, and I would go with my sisters. And so I saw it over and over and over and over again. Then I went and saw it as an adult in my 30s, and I couldn't believe how bad it was. And I don't mean bad. I mean, some of it is magnificent. But I don't mean bad. I meant, like, wooden, how uh, Vivian Lee, who I thought had given this, like, ins- insanely great performance, actually was overacting in crazily. Oh, yeah. Throughout Terrible. most of the movie, I was really kind of disheartened to discover whatever the politics of it may be, how um, 
how kind of awful a lot of it was. Yeah. Or how it really didn't stand up. Um, but those are my. So, Jonah, do you have like a masterpiece? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, uh, masterpiece. I mean, both Godfathers, which are right. on your list too, right? Um, uh, but masterpieces. I mean, uh, I mean, I really love Bridge and River Kwai. I think it's a great movie. I, I I love The Great Escape. I, you know, but those aren't masterpieces. Maybe Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, I've seen oh, ten yeah. times. Um, certainly, if you plot? have pieces, can you explain the plot? Um, Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia has one of the most confusing plots. Oh, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, I'm not going to do that now. You have to already know the story. There are shifts and alliances, and the the like the politics of the middle of of the imperial Middle East versus the tribes and everything like that. And I've seen it five times, and I've yeah. read the Seven Pillars of Wisdom, and I still don't have the foggiest idea whose side we're on. You know, um, at any given moment. What side exactly, Lawrence? You don't know what side you're on, Lawrence. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, you don't know, but it's still great. It, oh, it's but amazing. I think most people kind of knew that it was a big, that you don't really try, all you really need to know is that he's uh, assisting rebels against the Ottomans. They hate him. Uh, the French and the English promise that the people will be free, and then they're not. And Al Guinness is fantastic. The rest of it is um, and Alkins is fantastic. So I don't know if you guys, and I'm just, I'm even cautious about raising this because if you guys crap on it, then I'm done with Glop and you're dead to me. But uh, Miracle on 34th Street. Oh, uh, my God. Oh. Is just, oh. it's such a family oh, tradition. great movie. Okay. Here's the question. What's the, what's the argument against it. That's what I find so interesting is the arguments against movies because like it's just like it's uh, it's sappy. Like yeah. So it isn't sappy. That's the secret of Miracle on 34th Street is that it is a it's a flawless screenplay. It's a flawless screenplay and the whole thing and what's so interesting about it is the idea that the cynical broken person in it is a woman. That's that is the fresh mm-hmm angle of the movie is that Maureen O'Hara, who is like the most beautiful woman in the history of movies, is has been broken by a bad divorce, yeah. and she is cynical and not very nice and trying to raise her daughter to be a cynical, distrusting person, and this thing happens, and it's structured so perfectly, that movie, because it starts with the Thanksgiving Day Parade, and it goes through Christmas, and, you know... Everything is thrown in there. All drinks and 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 you know yeah. and, the, and the postal service and the court system. It is all the way to the last scene when uh, John Wayne spanks her, <laughs> 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 which is really kind of just wakes her up. By the way, speaking of which, um, can I just say speaking of which, another movie. Um, um, it, and I, I'm pretty sure that this is the way this movie goes. John Cassavetes, Jenna Rollins, his wife, stars in this. A woman under the influence, or a woman, something, I think. Yeah. And she keeps, she has, she's having ner- a nervous breakdown. And she's going crazier and crazier until her husband, who I think is Ben Gazzara. No, it's it Peter, Peter, Peter Falk. Falk. Peter Falk. Peter Falk. Smacks her. And then she's okay. <laughs> I think that's how the movie goes. Movies. I have wanted all my life to like them. I've tried. Yeah. Like, I think, oh, you know, they're so raw. They're kind of amateur. But, you know, people, uh, yeah. and, like, I watch them, and they're like, this is yeah. crap. Yeah. <laughs> this is just yeah. overlong self-indulgent that. crap. 
I would have that argument with friends of mine who were like, we're getting an improv thing. We're doing improv. We're doing up, up, uh, Upright Citizens Brigade. Like, yeah, okay, fine. Write it down first, and then make it better, <laughs> and then I'll come and pay for it. But write it down. Make it better. That's the thing you're forgetting. Just write it down. You, you show up a week before I show up and make it good and then ask me to pay for it. Well, you know, way, like, we just made it up. So, well, yes, yeah, not that great. We just made it up. I made it up right now, John. So, of course, it's not very good because I just made it up. Well, okay, I get it. Well, then write it down and start this week good, ago. Rob, when it's good, yeah. they're capturing yeah, lightning in good. a bottle. When it's good. Yeah, I don't want no. – yeah. it's, it's, it's never good. It's never good. And then I'll pay for it after you've good. made it better. Yeah. And with that, we now have to go to our second sponsor. We're also sponsored today by Donors Trust, the principal tax-friendly way to preserve your charitable giving. When a crisis comes up, it's good to have a few dollars socked away. Well, the same is true of our charitable dollars. That's why it's good to have a charitable savings account so you have resources to dip into when people need them. That's exactly what a donor-advised fund can do for you. And if you believe in limited government and free people, a Donors Trust donor-advised fund is the account for you. Donors Trust acts as your own charitable ATM, helping you manage your giving in a way that's smart, tax-advantaged, and private. John and Samantha use Donors Trust. When their children went to college, they realized university educators sometimes leave out important lessons. Since then, they've used their fund of Donors Trust to support classroom programs that teach free market economics, the rule of law, and free expression, principles that shouldn't get lost in times of emergency. Sure, they could have written personal checks to accomplish their goals, but with Donors Trust, they knew they'd spend less time in administration and more time having an impact. Now is the time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and join its community of liberty-minded givers by opening a donor-advised fund. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash glop to get your free donor prospectus and learn how a donor-advised fund can help you simplify and grow your charitable giving. That's www.DonorsTrust.org slash glop. And we thank Donors Trust for sponsoring the Glop podcast. But by the way, Miracle and and It's a Wonderful Life. Now, It's a Wonderful Life. I submit as yeah, one, of the, as one of the five greatest or some American movies. And the only reason that we know It's a Wonderful Life as well as we do is that it was a flop and it fell out of copyright. I mean, it's one of right. these m- mysterious stories where it was made by this independent production company, and whatever happened. It fell out of copyright, and so any television station could run it at any time for free. Right. And so it ran everywhere. So they discovered this in the mid-'70s, and suddenly it's like, this is the greatest male performance ever given on screen, in my view. J- James Stewart's performance in It's a Wonderful Life, and that character is so spectacular, and the movie is so as- astonishingly good. And I've seen that think, probably twenty times. Yeah, no, that, that sort of. I think, I think that's yeah. why I've seen Day of the Triffids so many times. <laughs> w O R ran that like all week at times, um, and uh, and also there are all those four thirty movies. I mean, did you have a four sure. thirty movie in Baltimore, Rob? Oh yeah, we all we, everybody had a four thirty movie. Yeah, because like that music is one of the most triggering music. I've, okay, let's do it. Let's I do mean, it. Ready. That, Wow, we're really doing it? No, I'm not doing it, but John, you're right. John's doing it. And 
like the you know all of those monster movies, Planet of the Apes. I probably as a kid. Oh, I was so saw scared. Some of those I was movies too scared by. Times. I was too sure. scared by Planet of the Apes. But the really bad ones, like they would replay in the afternoon or the evening. I like those too. The the weird gothic ones that were you know they made for three cents, where you could see the staples and the, where the curtains were stapled to the park cardboard, and there was always someone. Mm-hmm. In a sort of plummy acting school accent, saying "In due time," in due time. <laughs> <laughs> it's something no one ever says. Yeah. The great movie story about that is that uh, Roger Corman, you know, who uh, who made all of these cheap horror movies, um, he made a movie called The Terror, which has Jack Nicholson in it. I think Boris Karloff and Jack Nicholson in it, and they made it in two days. And if you and, and it ran two billion times, and if you see it, it makes no sense because all all he kept, in order to get it to sort of length where they could show it in these drive-ins right. in, the, in the south, they just cut in extraneous scenes from other movies and like shots of a castle and you know and, and <laughs> lightning and thunder and stuff, and then Jack Nicholson's character walking down a corridor, and then they flipped the film so he'd walk back toward you. And um, as a kind of, like, Dadaist performance of, like, how can you make a movie that doesn't have a plot or a story uh, just to make it, to get it out to the drive-ins to fulfill your contract? It is kind of fascinating to watch. Um, uh, kind of an amazing an amazing thing. Um, so, but what about, like, uh, uh, women's movies? Women's prison movies? Like Chain Heat? Yeah, oh, yeah. Those are, because, you know, oh. women really love those, you know. In, w- w- women's movies, what do you mean? <laughs> like, name one. Terms of Endearment? Yeah, well, Terms of Endearment is a great, I yeah. mean, like, what, what's a woman's movie? I mean, like, like An Affair to Remember is a woman's movie, or... Oh, I see, I see, um, yeah. You know, Joan Crawford, Mildred Pierce, or Stella Dallas. The Ghost of Miss... The Ghost of Mrs. Muir. Little Women, uh, <laughs> there are the versions of Little yeah. Women, or, you know, uh, stuff like like the movies that women wanted to go see. That, yeah, that the, the Stella Dallas ones. That I think, aren't Mel Gibson's yeah. payback. Yeah, those those movies are like the mom who sacrifices everything for the daughter, and then she turns on her. Yeah. You're nothing to me, mother. You're just a <laughs> haggard old whatever washerwoman. I'm in society now. And then the, the mom says, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm just happy for you, Constance. Stop calling me Constance. My new name is Debevise, the Vice Countess of the Derb. <laughs> Whatever it is, right? <laughs> yeah. It's all about, like, like oh, then your kids will do that to you because you're going to sacrifice for them and they're going to, like, turn on you. So There's always a housekeeper saying, I don't know why you're putting up, you know, like, like whoever the housekeeper was, like, Hazel. I don't know why you're putting up for that, Mrs. G. Yeah. yeah. Elma Ritter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's, is that is that Stella Dallas? Is that Miller Pierce? No, that's both. You you merge the you merge the two of them beautifully. Oh. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> um, well, you know there is like there is like um, you remember the English Patient? So the English Patient, which won all these Oscars in like 1995 uh, or something like that, yeah. or Titanic. And yeah, the whole yeah. plot of the English Patient was basically this guy betrays. Be, out of love for a woman, he basically betrays the Allies, and he helps right. the he helps the Nazis um, because the whole he loves the love is so transcendent that he will do whatever he can uh-huh. and he needs to help the Nazis uh, out of love for he, this woman, including fight the fight for the Axis. 
<laughs> yeah. Help, the, help usher in the thousand year right. Exactly. And he, so, and so the thing was, love. I remember going to see it with someone I was dating <laughs> at the time and having some insane argument that led to the our breakup about whether I would do that for her under those circumstances. And I said, no, I'm sorry, I would not betray all the relationships and questions asked you. And that was just okay, not okay, okay. acceptable. I know you like me, and I know that things are going good, and I know that we haven't had the conversation, but I would like to know if you love me enough that you would help Hitler. <laughs> like, well, hey, I get uh, Hitler. I don't know about Hitler. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely Mussolini. Franco, Franco sure. Hitler? Well, let's just go. I'm, not, I'm out of the axis, right? So, not Hitler, not Hirohito, not Mussolini. Yes to Salazar for sure. A yes to um, what about Bella Kuhn? Bella Kuhn. Uh, okay. Um, All right. Mentito. All right. Now, I mean, Mentito. maybe after, may, maybe after our parents have met. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one fun fact about Bella Kuhn, he was a huge chain smoker. And that's why I want to talk to you today about Lucy nicotine gum and lozenges. Actually, I don't know whether Bella Kuhn was a big chain smoker or not. I think he was, because um, they all were back then. But I really want to talk to you about Lucy. Lucy Nicotine is a company founded by Caltech scientists and former smokers looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative. Finally, Tobacco alternatives that don't suck. Research and developed for three years to be made for people, not patients. Lucy has created a nicotine gum with four sweet, sweet milligrams of nicotine that comes in three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate. Lucy also has a lozenge with four milligrams of nicotine in cherry ice flavor. And each one tastes great. It's convenient and discreet. Products can be enjoyed anywhere, on flights, at work, on the go, or even in the gym. This is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your door each month. It's so simple, and you don't have to leave your house because Lucy has delivery down. We should also say that, you know, with all the backlash against vaping, if you want to do something to get off vaping, Lucy is a great product for that as well. If you ever tried to quit smoking or vaping, you know how helpful these alternatives can be. They can make all the difference on a night out when you're just trying to stay smoke-free. So get rid of your cigarettes, unplug your vape, throw out your dip, and get some Lucy nicotine gum or lozenges. This is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your door each month. It's so simple and you don't have to leave your house because Lucy has delivery taken care of. Glop Culture listeners, go to Lucy, that's L-U-C-Y, dot co, as in C-O, and use promo code GLOP, G-L-O-P, to get 20% off all products on your first order, including gum or lozenges. That's Lucy.co, promo code GLOP at checkout. Also, I have to give this disclaimer. Warning, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Lucy.co, and be sure to use that promo code GLOP. And we thank Lucy for sponsoring the GLOP podcast.
speaking of chain smokers, Kim Jong Un, I don't know if you noticed this, has, has lost weight. It's kind of a news story. He's not. He's lost weight. He looks thinner, but nobody knows how thinner because no one, <laughs> no one there is going to say, "Hey, Mr. Kim, you want to just pop on the old scales here, just for just routine?" No one ever wants to do that. <laughs> and whatever scales there are in the Kim Jong Un Palace, I'm sure show him at a smelt, you know, 152 pounds. And like, wow, your your BMI, <laughs> sir, is 0.01 percent. Uh, <laughs> particularly since you're six foot, <laughs> yeah, right. So a little black guy, and he's a, and apparently only his wife is uh, feels emboldened to say things roundaboutly, like, "Hey, you know, interesting article here in the, you know, People's Workers Daily about the regular exercise and you know cutting down on." He eats a lot, and what, and, what, and the rumors when he disappeared recently, he had a uh, gout, um, which is a shocking illness. That I know a little bit about. Well, I mean, if, apparently, apparently, in that article it says that if he just dragged the bodies out of the people he got murdered himself yes. for both the the weight lift, the strength training, and the cardio, he would be in much better yeah. shape. And intermittent fasting, <laughs> yeah. as opposed to as opposed to the people of North Korea who are permanently fasting. <laughs> exactly. They right. have intermittent. They have intermittent eating. <laughs> yeah, they, they don't even have intermittent eating. Yeah. Right. Um, so, uh, by the way, we should maybe close on this uh, point because uh, Jonah was one of the people who who was making uh, was was pointing this out on Twitter. Uh, this bizarre community college professor in San Francisco who uh, allowed us how some people think he really loves Stalin, and he <laughs> doesn't really people say I idolize Stalin. Right? <laughs> I idolize. I doesn't really idolize Stalin, but um, and and here's what's interesting because of course Stalin. Um, Maybe the worst mass murderer in the history of the world. You, you felt, responsible right. you felt for the need to say that? Conservatively 40 million yeah, deaths, I, I believe, uh, that we can you know, sort of tag him with. Um, Twitter and social media do this weird thing where somebody says something like this that is uh, self-evidently like – just an absolutely horrible, monstrous, terrible thing to say. And then the guy gets famous for like a day. Now, maybe he should be ruined or something like that. But, um, well, just, you know, isn't this yeah. just another reason why we should, in case listeners haven't heard or read the tweets, I mean, the, the, the amazing part about it was he says, people say I idolize Stalin. That's not really true. But, I, you know, he makes important contributions to that to the Marxist literature, and by all accounts, he was a wonderful listener, yeah, thoughtful listener, <laughs> and conversationalist. Yeah, right. <laughs> and the funny thing is, by he he was that by zero accounts. <laughs> exactly. I mean, like, I at one point I had to tweet is like, I, I can't believe I feel compelled to say this, Stalin. Not a great listener. Imagine if you tweeted or I tweeted, people say I idolize uh, Confederate President Jefferson Davis. It would be, <laughs> my God, the, st- the skies would open up. Yeah. So um, uh, I, I, the funny part about this is uh, that kind of thing, like Stalin was a, you know, an excellent uh, listener. Is like uh, I, I talked about this uh, on the commentary podcast. Uh, this week uh, marks the 95th birthday of uh, Mel Brooks, 
And one of the great uh, one of the great things in the uh, two thousand year old man routines was when he would talk about the great and the near great, and he would say things like. Sigmund Freud, he was a great basketball player. Very few people know this. Well, you know what they didn't know? Because he used to set up the shots. He didn't take the shots himself. You know, or, you know, he fixed up Benjamin Franklin and Marie Curie. You know, that kind of thing. And it's funny. And then you have somebody who does it for for real. Right. (laughs) Colin was an excellent listener. People don't really know that. Also, because the Stalin thing is such a layup. It's like... If you're a Marxist, it's like you giving somebody. It's fun to like you could you could dump on Stalin all you like. I'm not. I mean, Stalin was a horrible. Uh, 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 he 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 distorted the whole part part of communism and Marxism. I mean, you, you'd be given this gift. You could be an ardent communist and and deal with the Stalin question by simply dumping on Stalin. Poor old Stalin gets no, no credit. So All right, so guy. Rob, the martini shot. Everyone's got to subscribe to the martini shot. Yes, please do. I think, by the way, if you get Glop in your feed and you're on Apple Podcasts, I think chances are if you look at what they suggest around Glop, the martini me, shot will be there. The algorithms work. And, so you, uh, and uh, uh, Jonah, what do, you, uh, what do you have to tell the people about where they can see you? Um, on Wednesday of this week, which would be June 30th, I'll be back on Special Report. I will deal with my sunburn look. John, I know you're very concerned about this. I'm very concerned. Um, and we got uh, I, we have our mutual friend, Vin Canato, is on the latest episode of The Remnant. And uh, uh, that's fantastic. That's about it. And I, I think I'm going to be seeing Rob in the place where he is, which we're not supposed to be saying where it is. Right, yeah. and uh, I, uh, you can hear me every day on the Commentary Magazine uh, daily podcast. So, and of yeah. course, Jonah's, uh, Jonah's got two a week himself, and Rob's on the Ricochet podcast on Fridays. Uh, Jonah does the solo Ruminant, I think, comes out on Saturday, and you get your, your other podcast on Thursday, Tuesday? Or whatever. whatever. We record whatever. them Tuesdays and Thursdays yeah. that come out either that night or the yeah. next day. Okay. So, uh, we are here. Uh, happy Fourth of July, everybody. Take off your goddamn mask, and we'll see you uh, in a couple of weeks. And uh, hello to you, Ricochet. Join the conversation.